um, finishing up this passage that Jesus preaches where he talks about the spiritual leaders of the day and then he speaks to the spiritual leaders of the day. And so we're going to be wrapping that up, that, that section this morning. You know, it is so awesome to have Jesus describe what we should do as well as what we should not do. And it's kind of interesting how that lays out in Jesus's ministry because the very first uh, public sermon that Jesus preaches is the Beatitudes. It's how blessed are you if you do this? How blessed are you if you obey? And he just goes through these things and talks about how we can have blessing in our life. And he ends with the exact opposite of woe is you if you do these things. And, and it's amazing. He's speaking to the crowds in Matthew chapter 5, and he's speaking to the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23. Now, one of the things that's happening here is uh, the triumphal entry has happened. Jesus has gone in and he's cleansed the temple. So remember that on Palm Sunday, Jesus has, has gone into Jerusalem. Everybody's cheering. Every, you know, there's all these massive crowds singing Hosanna. And so the disciples think, okay, this is the this is the Messiah coming to set up his kingdom. And so that's happened. And then Jesus goes and he cleanses the temple. So he walks in. And, and, and if you remember, in Jesus' ministry, the disciples knew that the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. And actually, when Jesus is going to uh, minister to Lazarus, where he's going to raise him from the dead, the disciples are feeling like, man, we can't go there. That is the stronghold of the Pharisees. And they're just like, well, Jesus, okay, if you're going to go, we'll go with you and, and we'll die with you. So the disciples go from being afraid of the Pharisees and seeing their power to seeing Jesus come in with all the crowds just cheering for him. They see him go in and cleanse the temple. And then he starts um, addressing the Pharisees directly. So there's all the Pharisees there. He talks to the crowd about the, the Pharisees, and then he specifically rebukes the Pharisees. So that's where we are in Matthew chapter 23. But in the mind of the disciples... This is where Jesus is going to set up his earthly kingdom. They feel like, oh man, this is just amazing. We are going to be Jesus' right-hand men. And they don't realize that within two days, Jesus is going to be crucified. Their, their faith is just going to be crushed. They're going to be so disappointed because what's about to happen is not at all what they are, going to, what they are expecting. So that's kind of what's happening here. But as Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, he is going to deliver a scathing rebuke of these religious leaders. And one of the things that we see is that the crowds did not heed Jesus' message. The Pharisees did not heed Jesus' message because in two days, that, that, the crowd is going to be chanting, crucify him. And uh, one of the things that's important for you and I to remember is that Satan and his plans have not changed. Humanity has not changed. And, and there is a difference. There, there, there are false teachers then, there are false teachers now, and there will be false teachers. And so we need to recognize that false teachers are slaves to Satan. Uh, they do and say exactly what Satan wants them to say, and we'll be looking at that because these Pharisees, they were religious. They were actually in the right religion. Like the Jewish religion was right. It was the right religion. But these men were actually tools of Satan taking people to hell. And so that's one of the things that we see. And they were enslaved to that. But here's the thing we need to recognize. This message is important for us 
as we evaluate leaders, as we evaluate teachers, but it is also important for us to, to look at this and to see these qualities sometimes working their way out in our life. We're sinful people, we have a sinful flesh, and even amongst true believers, even in churches that are faithful, we can get caught up into these same types of things that Satan used to trip up the Pharisees. Now, one of the things that we'll see later in this passage is that the Pharisees study Scripture. And instead of looking at these um, false, these, these people that killed the prophets and identifying, going, hey, wait a second, that's me. The Pharisees never saw themselves in Scripture. And so it's a dangerous thing for you and I if, if we read passages like this and we just have someone else in mind. We need to also be looking for ways that Satan is trying to use these things on us. When you think about the church, the church is to be a gracious, loving place where we know God is for us and when we're, when we're for each other. The church is supposed to be a place that is the pillar and the support of the truth where we come and we learn what God says about life. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day completely corrupted what God intended through the church. And Satan wants rivalries. He wants dissension. And did you know that Satan loves bad doctrine? Uh, a, a church claiming to be a Christian church and then teaching things that are not in line with Scripture, Satan loves that because it destroys people, it harms people, and when people believe these lies, it destroys their eternal destiny and it destroys their life here on earth. But you want to know what else Satan loves? Satan loves good doctrine on the lips of a false teacher. He loves people who preach the truth but then live something in contradiction to that. Because it's actually so repulsive when you hear somebody say the truth and you go, but you know what? I know what that person's life is like like a person who preaches the truth and then is abusive toward people. And those people that have been abused, like when, when that person preaches things, when they say things that are true, it actually makes people hate what they say because of who those people are. Now, I've seen great doctrine on the lips of prideful, arrogant people, and it makes people actually hate that doctrine. And that's so one of the things that Satan loves is he loves good doctrine on the lips of a, a person living a life that they should not be living. By the way, that's why Jesus says about the Pharisees, do the things that they say, but don't do what they do. Because there were times that what the Pharisees said were true. Of course, there were also they would take that good doctrine and then mislead people and say things that weren't true. When, when we consider uh, leadership and teaching, you know, leadership is so incredibly important. It is such an amazing blessing. But we need to approach leadership and teaching with a sense of reverence. James chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's two things that God cares about. When you're a leader and when you're a teacher, that you are leading people correctly, that you are teaching people the truth. God actually cares how we represent him. By the way, 
That's why he said that the Pharisees were hypocrites because they pretended to represent God, but in fact, they represented themselves. That's a hypocrite. That is a terrible thing. That brings judgment. When a person stands in front of people and says, this is what's true, and I speak for God, and then they say things that are not true, uh, people will be judged very strictly for that. The other thing is that when you, as a teacher, are telling other people to do things and you don't do it, that brings judgment into your life. That's what Jesus said about the Pharisees, right? They tie up these heavy burdens and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they won't so much as lift a finger. Um, Teaching is something that we should approach with great reverence. It's something that's needed. We should be thankful for it. We should pray that God would give us leaders and more people should be leaders. But we approach that with reverence. I think about the Old Testament with Aaron's sons. Um, God killed Aaron's sons. They were priests. They were supposed to be examples of obeying God. And they went into the temple and they just decided, hey, I want to do this worship thing my own way. And they changed what God said and God actually just killed them both. Or Eli's sons. Eli's sons were priests representing God and they were sexually immoral with people in the church, in the, in the nation of Israel. They were sexually immoral and they stole offerings and they did things that dishonored God and God killed them both. Now let's just take another faithful man, Moses, a faithful man honoring God, leading the nation of Israel. And at the end of his ministry, He treats God with a lack of reverence. Do you remember what happened with Moses? God said, you you treated me with a lack of reverence so you don't get to go into the promised land. Standing in a position of leadership, opening up God's word, teaching it, leading people is of utmost importance. And what we learned about these leaders, these Pharisees, they took that lightly They didn't take it reverently. They actually used their position to lead people away from Christ. And they're actually going to lead people to crucify him. So here are some things Jesus does. In his sermon, beginning in Matthew 23, verse 1 through 12, he actually talks to the crowds about the Pharisees. And he says they teach things, but they don't do them. They are without compassion. They don't actually care about people. They don't help the people that they're leading. They do things to be seen by others. All their righteous deeds are to get credit from other people, and they steal God's glory. And then Jesus just says to the crowds, be a servant to others. Don't be like the Pharisees. And then Jesus turns from the crowds And he looks directly at the Pharisees and he pronounces seven woes. Uh, Just says, man, your life is a disaster. You are going to be cursed. Everything in your life is going to go wrong because of these seven things that you do. And then as he goes on, um, we looked at this last week, that they lead their followers to eternal destruction. We see that in verse 13 through 15. They misrepresent God's word in 16 through 22. You know, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2.13 that evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Sometimes the people that are the most deceptive of other people are themselves self-deceived. And that's one of the things that we see. Um, 
The third thing that we saw is that they had misplaced priorities. They focused on their religious deeds and they forgot to care about the people that God made in his image. They were tithing the mint and the dill and they were neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness, those more important things. And they had misplaced effort. They spent all their time working on the outside and they neglected their heart. So we're going to look, continue on, and we're going to start in verse 27, and we're going to see three, three important things left this morning in this passage. First, they have a deceiving display. Now think about that. People look at the Pharisees, and they evaluate them as spiritual. They evaluate them as good, faithful leaders when the fact is that they're not. The second thing that we're going to see is that God tells them they are going to be accountable for the way that they have harmed the faithful. And then the third thing that we're going to see is that there is absolute certain judgment. Jesus in this passage, and actually in Matthew chapter 24, our next passage in Matthew, is going to actually talk about how Jerusalem is going to be destroyed Um, And in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. And so Jesus predicts that, and he says, you are going to be destroyed. But that is followed up by a message of hope. They will be judged, but here's something for all of us to remember. There is always hope. So let's jump into this passage. Let's read it, and let's consider a few of these things. Let's consider that these Pharisees, they have a deceiving display. Look at verse 27. In verse 27, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's how Jesus describes the Pharisees. Now, one of the things, just as you point this out, there's a lot that you can read and learn about tombs and whitewashed tombs and how they would whitewash the tombs in that day so that people wouldn't touch them and become unclean and all those kinds of things. But can I just tell you, like this verse, right in this verse, Jesus talks about what he means when he says a whitewashed tomb. So when he's talking about whitewashed tombs, he says that it's, you appear outwardly, you, you appear righteous, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So this is a whitewashed tomb. Uh, this is a tomb of, um, of somebody in Israel, and it's white. You can see they, they did that. They painted it white. And Jesus' point here is that something terrible looks beautiful. This is one of the things that they do in, in Israel and that they did at that time is they would take a stone box and they would decorate it. And actually when people died, they would put their bones in those boxes. And this is the analogy that Jesus draws is he just says, um, outwardly you appear beautiful. That, that box looks beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. It's not beautiful. It's, one, it's not wonderful. It's death. And that's what they are. They look good on the outside, but inside they're death. They have a deceiving display. Now, have you ever wondered why do false teachers sometimes appear 
so deceptively beautiful? Why do they seem so good and so right? Like, that's, that's a challenging thing for us. Because if you look at a person and they seem like they're faithful, they seem like a good teacher, well, how do you know? And one of the things that I think would be good for us to consider is why do false teachers, why sometimes do they appear so righteous on the outside when inside they're so wrong? What are some things we can learn? And I think one of the first things we need to understand with religion, there are a lot of people that think that religion as a whole is good. And as believers, we need to recognize that religion as a whole is not good. Religion is one of Satan's favorite tools. Like there are so many things as you read history, and you read about the terrible, atrocious things that have been done in the name of God. You think about people like the Salem witch trials where, where, where people were killed. Or you think about the Spanish Inquisition and just, just the Crusades, all done in the name of Christ. Now, wouldn't Satan most love to do evil, wicked, terrible things and then give God the credit for it? That's one of the things that Satan does. And so when we look at this, um, why is demonic doctrine so attractive? Well, look at this. It says, now the spirit, uh, the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. When you go to a, a false religion, a, a belief system other than Christianity, defined as God describes Christianity, those things are actually demonic beliefs. They're deceptive. A lot of it is so amazing because no human could come up with it. Satan himself comes up with it. Here's another reason that sometimes we can be confused by false leaders is they have a prideful confidence you know, sometimes um, people, if they're prideful and they're just confident, they say, hey, this is what we should do. It reminds me of a story I told you the other week when John's sitting in class correcting his teacher back when he was a little kid. And he just, the teacher writes this math problem on the board and John just says, that's wrong. And the teacher just immediately thinks, oh my goodness, let me check my math. Maybe I did something wrong. Of course, she wasn't wrong. But John just said that with such confidence that it made, that it made her actually question herself. Sometimes we follow people that are very confident, though they are confidently wrong. This is what it says here in 1 Timothy, talking about false teachers. It says, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. There's another reason that sometimes people fall to false teachers, and that's because false teachers sinfully accommodate people. They have a sinful accommodation. Look at 2 Timothy 4.3. It says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, healthy doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And we'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Yeah, I mean, is that not our culture? That, that people just go, okay, well, what's a doctrine I like? Tell me, tell me some different doctrinal views. Which one suits me? I'll pick that. And they're not driven. They're not committed to Scripture. They, they don't humbly open up the Bible and say, God, what do you say? 
and that's what I'll believe. They just say, hey, lay out all the doctrine for me and let me pick the one I like. And there are many people that they follow teachers because those teachers appeal to their personal desires instead of being faithful to Scripture. I'll tell you another one. It's because false teachers make empty promises. They, they take Scripture and they twist it and they make promises that don't deliver. Second Peter 2.19 talks about these people and they say they promise freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. You know, these uh, false teachers, they don't have the Holy Spirit in their life uh, that, that strengthens them, that convicts them of sin, that leads them in righteousness. These false teachers are slaves of sin. And they say, oh, yeah, no, come and, and, and you can have freedom. Don't, don't be bound by the things that God says. L let me help you be free. And then they, they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves. And everybody that follows them is also a slave of corruption. That's what Jesus says, that they are full of hypocrisy and they are full of lawlessness. That's just disobeying God. Now, what does God say? How does he contrast that with true teachers? You know, in uh, 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul says this to Timothy, Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Watch your lifestyle and watch what you teach. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. For the Pharisees, everything was about them. For us as believers in the church, this is what God says true teaching is supposed to be like. 1 Timothy 1.5, it says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, faithful leaders are to be humbly conflict, uh, confident, not pridefully confident. Paul goes on and he tells Titus about teaching the truth. He doesn't say just, just be humble and be timid and don't stand for what's right. In Titus 2.15, he says, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So, so leaders are to be, they're to be bold, they're to be confident, they're, they're to proclaim truth, not wishy-washy, oh, this is kind of what I believe and that's what you believe and everybody should just pick what they want. No, leaders need to stand confidently and faithfully on God's word, correctly understood. So let's just see the second thing with these Pharisees. The second reason that they will be cursed and just have this woe in their life is because they persecute the faithful. You know, you think about what's happened in church history. And churches claiming to be Christians have actually taking, taken spiritually faithful people, tied them to a pole, and lit them on fire in their neighborhoods. That's one of the things that they used to do is that they would take, they would find a pastor. Some of these religions claiming to be Christian, they would go into a neighborhood. They would find a pastor, and they would actually take him into his neighborhood, close to where his church was, make a pile of wood, um, uh, tie him to a stake and they would burn him alive in front of everybody in his church. And, and the people doing that claimed to be believers. And these Pharisees, these Pharisees actually persecuted the faithful people that God sent. 
Let's read this in verse 29. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets, and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Crazy. They would read about how Israel had defected from God and actually killed the faithful prophets. And when these Pharisees read those passages, they would say, oh, that's not me. Oh, I'm not like that. They were so blind about these things in their own life when they were actually planning to kill Jesus himself. They could not make the connection the spiritual connection between those false teachers in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel that would attack the faithful prophets and themselves. He goes on and he says this. He says in verse 31, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. And with that phrase, when he's saying fill it up, that's Jesus talking about the fact that they are going to try to kill him. Do you remember the, um, the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 21 where he talks about the, uh, the tenant farmers where there's this person that, that builds a vineyard and he rents it out to tenants and then when the owner of that vineyard sends in his servants, those tenants kill the servants And then finally, he sends his own son, and they say, oh, good, there's the son, there's the heir, let's kill him. And when Jesus tells that, Jesus says this in verse 43 of Matthew 21, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is just saying, I am undefeatable. But then look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they they held him to be a prophet. You know, they failed to identify themselves correctly. They were like straining the gnats, swallowing the camels. And they were guilty. And they were destined for destruction. Look at verse, what Jesus says here in verse um, 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Um, Jesus is talking to these Pharisees, and he, he says, how will you escape eternal judgment when you do these things? Now, when you talk about persecution, you know, that actually happened. Um, they were persecuted. Um, The faithful believers were persecuted. Do you remember Stephen Um, in Acts chapter 7? He's preaching, and the Pharisees, and they grab people, and they actually stone him to death. And when you think about that, the apostle Paul, at the time called Saul, was standing there watching that happen. They beat Peter and threw him in prison when he preached. And collectively, God says, everybody who's persecuted the faithful 
the responsibility of that is going to fall on your shoulders. You join in with those who persecute God's people. Now, as we think about that persecution, I want to ask you something. Um, God tells these Pharisees, you're going to persecute people. I'm going to continue to send faithful messengers, which, by the way, what an incredible opportunity. What a blessing. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, all right, that's it. I'm not sending you any more people. Jesus tells them, I'm going to continue sending faithful people to preach, and you are going to persecute them and reject them. Now, I just have a question for you. Do you face persecution in your life? Like the Pharisees hated Jesus. Jesus actually said, they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. Um, I was thinking about uh, just this, this passage in 2 Timothy and in Philippians, and it says this in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did you know that that's actually a promise? If you are spiritually faithful, you will be persecuted. And Jesus actually tells us through the Apostle Paul in Philippians, he says this, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Have you thought about that? That the ability to believe in Jesus is a gift that God gives, but also suffering is a gift that he gives. Now, have you ever thought about that? Um, why do you think, and this is just a question, nobody has to shout out the answer, but why do you think so many believers don't face persecution? Do you think sometimes we struggle to be who God calls us to be? We don't say the things that we should say. We don't stand up in ways that we should stand up because we are afraid of persecution. We want approval. We want acceptance. And, you know, actually, there's a lot of false doctrine that people buy into because they don't want to face academic persecution. And so I think a lot of times people don't face persecution because um, they're being unfaithful. But as believers, we should lovingly speak for Christ. But people persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute us. And we should welcome that. We should be willing to face it and be thankful for it. In Acts 5.41, after Peter was beaten and the apostles were beaten, it says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. See, there's people that they're not willing to suffer dishonor. They're not willing to suffer social rejection for the sake of Christ. And so they compromise their beliefs in order to be um, welcomed. You know, there's something else that is stated here, and this is like a, it's a side note, but it's actually something we should pay attention to. Look what it says here in verse 35. It says, so that, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, from the blood of righteous Abel. Do you know who Abel was? You guys ever hear the story of Cain and Abel? Remember how Cain killed Abel? Who was Abel? He was Adam's son, right? Adam and Eve's son. So there's a couple of really important things. Um, that happens in Genesis chapter 4 where Abel is, is mentioned, his, where he's killed. And Zechariah, there's, there's a debate about who Zechariah is. But this is an interesting note. So Abel is in Genesis, 
and all the righteous blood from Abel to Zechariah. Did you know that in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, there was a prophet named Zechariah who was killed in a temple? So in a sense, when Jesus says from Abel to Zechariah, now what we don't recognize is 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. So Jesus actually is identifying Genesis to 2 Chronicles, which is the entire Old Testament. So he bookends it. In a sense, Jesus is just identifying what scripture is in the Old Testament. See, for us, our books end in Malachi, but for the Hebrew Bible that Jesus used, 2 Chronicles was last. So he identifies that. Now there's something else to notice. Jesus is portraying Abel as a real person. You know that there are people who take the opening um, chapters of Genesis and they just say, that's not real. Uh, and, and they buy into the theory of evolution and just say, oh no, we, we evolved. And what the Bible says about how God created us, that's not what really happened. And they buy into these scientific views that are presented by people who actually hate God. People who say, I, will, I refuse to believe that there is a God. I will explain creation without God. And, and there's people that, that they buy into that. They don't believe Adam and Eve were real people. They, they, don't, they wouldn't believe Abel was a real person. And somehow people think that they can confine that to just the opening chapters of Genesis. But the problem with that is that um, Jesus refers to Adam and Eve about marriage, right? God created them, male and female. Jesus' name, or Adam's name, appears in the genealogy in Luke. So are you going to say, oh, okay, every single person in Luke was a real person except Adam. He wasn't a real person. Or just, and the way that people approach that, and you know, um, we could get into this in much more detail, but I just want to say this. Um, for us to take a step back and just think about why do people disregard what God says about creation? A lot of that has to do with the scientific pressure social pressure. If you believe what the Bible says, then, then you, you're, you're just like a superstitious person that believes in totem poles. Um, the reality is that uh, we need to be careful to just study scripture and say, what does it say? This is what I believe. So that's, that was all a side note because Jesus mentioned Abel. And uh, one of the things that we're going to see for these people, these false teachers, is that they are going to be judged, but they also have hope. Look at verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Do you see Jesus' heart for these Pharisees that have rejected him, that, are, that, that, are gonna, that, that have led the nation against him, that are going to persecute his followers. He looks at them and he has a soft heart. And he just says, oh, like, like a mother taking care of her hens, I would have just wanted to wrap my, my wings around you and take care of you, but you were unwilling. And then Jesus is going to pronounce judgment. This is what he says, verse 38. See your house is left to you desolate. 
Um, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is going to actually describe the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's going to tell his disciples, you know, you think I'm coming to set up my kingdom? Actually, all of this will be destroyed. And he just tells them, yeah, it's not going to go the way you think it's going to go. And these Pharisees by 70 AD will be totally destroyed. The nation of Israel will be set to the side. God's not done with them, but they will be set to the side. But this is the amazing um, blessing that comes here in verse 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know that is from Psalm 118? And, And when did they say that? When were the crowds um, chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Do you know when that happened? It happened just a few days earlier on Palm Sunday. That's one of the things this crowd is is chanting. And then in a few days, they're going to chant, crucify him. And Jesus says, you will not see me again until your heart changes. I want to talk just for a minute about the nation of Israel. One of the things that Jesus has said is that the nation of Israel has been set to the side. They've been set to the side, and the church is now the organization that God is working through. He's not working through the nation of Israel right now. They have rejected their God. Jesus said, if you believed me, if you believed in my Father, you would believe me. And so when the Jews rejected them, Israel's destroyed. They've been set to the side. But, you know, God made some promises to the nation of Israel. Um, In Genesis chapter 15, verse 17 through 18, God promises Abraham that he's going to make him a great nation, and he actually makes this covenant with Abraham where he cuts animals apart and sets them to the side, and then this is the interesting thing, God walks between those animals. Now, that was how you would make a covenant, and basically what you were saying is, if I break the covenant, may I be like these animals, killed and cut in half. And usually when you made an agreement with somebody, both people would walk through because both were making that commitment. Do you know who walked through that one when God made that agreement with with Abraham? God walked through alone. Keeping that covenant rested solely on God. It was not actually resting on Abraham. And so God makes that promise. And in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 35 God says this, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and a fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. God promises Israel, you will be a nation before me forever. And how do you know this is true? Well, does the sun come up and does the sun go down? Can I ask you guys a question? (laughs) Is the sun, sun still coming up and is it still going down? So is God done with the nation of Israel? No, I mean, Jesus told them that they were gonna be set to the side, but is God ultimately done with them? No. And actually, Paul talks about that. Let me show you just a few things. In Romans chapter 11, look at this. Paul's talking about Israel. How do we understand the nation of Israel and the church? How do we think about these things? I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people 
whom he foreknew. Now, let me just ask you a question. Um, where else have you heard the term foreknew? Who else has God foreknown? See, in Romans chapter 8, um, Paul talks about believers, and it says that God foreknew us, and then he chose us, that we would be holy and blameless. Like, this is about Israel, but it's not just about Israel. It's about God's plan for believers. Look at verse 11 in Romans. It goes on, and it says this. So I ask, did they stumble, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their transgression, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And then he's going to go on in verse 25. And he says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. What's the mystery? That's the church. In the Old Testament, there was no picture of the church. That's the mystery. This mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And, and actually, that's the whole book of Revelation. In chapter 24, the disciples are going to say to Jesus, when are you coming back? And Jesus is going to talk about end times and God's purpose with the book of Revelation and the tribulation and all that. The purpose of that is to bring the nation of Israel back to faith in God. And here's the, the powerful thing for you and I, God's love and his mercy. One of the things it says in Romans 11 is it talks about the kindness and the severity of God. For us to think that we can disregard God like the Pharisees, just do our own thing and that we won't face God's wrath, God's punishment, that's wrong thinking. And that's been demonstrated in the nation of, of Israel. But for us to, us to also understand that God keeps his promises. And when God promises you, th you things, God's going to keep those promises. And the promises that he's made to the nation of Israel, he will keep with the nation of Israel. But here's the issue. Like nationally, God has that purpose. But when you read Romans chapter 11, you know it requires a personal response. Um, Israel has to go from rejecting God to repentance and trusting in Jesus to be saved. God's not going to just say, oh, okay, you're a Jew, you go to heaven. No. That restoration is going to happen when people in the nation of Israel put their faith in Jesus, and God is going to bring that about where they will personally trust Jesus. And for you and I, in the same way that trusting Jesus is the hope for Israel, trusting Jesus is our hope. It's our only hope. But we can trust Jesus because he's faithful. As we close this morning, I want to just encourage us that God intends the church to be a loving, encouraging place of truth. You know, the Jewish religion with the Pharisees, the way they treated people, what religion was, it was harsh it was a terror it was it was it was a, a representation of everything that god is not um, god wants our church to reflect god's love encouragement mercy and the church needs to be a place of truth the church is not a place where you come and make up all your own stuff the church is a place where we read what god says we believe what god says we trust what god says and we teach what god says the church is a place of truth. 
the church is a place where we point people to Christ. At, at our men's breakfast, we were talking about Joshua's leadership. And one of the things with Joshua is Joshua didn't say, hey, everybody, follow me. Joshua said, I'm challenging you. Choose whom you're going to serve, God or idols. But as for me and my house, I serve God. The church is a place, we, leaders don't point themselves, don't point people to them. They point people to Christ, but, but the leaders need to have made a personal commitment to follow Christ. And the church should be a place where we find examples, where we find people can help, who can help us pursue Christ. The problem is that if we don't read this passage, if we don't think about the warnings that Jesus gave the Pharisees, the church will not be the place that God intends it to be. If we take these things to heart, we're going to fail. We're going to struggle. I think one of the great things is, is that if, if you have leaders that read through this list of things and they just go, yeah, not me, not me. Yeah, I don't struggle with that stuff. That's pridefulness. And if we have leaders that they look at that list and they're soft-hearted and they're humble and they say, yeah, you know, there's times I fail, there's times I struggle with that. And if we don't have a church family that can look at leaders and go, yeah, God's given us leaders, but ultimately I don't follow leaders, I follow Christ. And so when I, ha when I see leaders that don't live up to who they should be, I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to try to be an example to them. I'm going to love them. See, as a church, we all struggle and we all fail. But that's the difference between people who are faithful and people who are false teachers is that faithful people have a heart of repentance and humility and they return to the Lord. So next week, next week we're going to actually look at an example. What's the difference between the Pharisees and a faithful believer who blows it? Now, we've talked a lot about um, David and Bathsheba. Next week, we're going to go through what happened with this faithful guy that did something so bad. And as believers, how do we think about those things in our life? That's what we'll look at next week. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your kindness, for giving us these warnings, for laying out who you want us to be. And Lord, we do fail, and we are men of flesh, men and women of flesh, and we, we, are, we do have sinful things in our life. And God, as, as those things happen, we pray that you would allow that to help us to be humble and gracious and merciful toward others. And yet, Lord, I just ask that you would never allow us to use those things as an excuse and to just say, oh, yeah, we all fail, and then disregard the things that you tell us that we are to be. Lord, help us to live our lives with reverence for you because we love you and because we want to be effective and because we trust you. God, I pray that our church would be a church that is gracious and merciful and loving and faithful in your name. Amen.